Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Cartha Smith, executive strategist and businesswoman, joins us today to talk about being a dot connector. Her insights on stakeholder collaboration, and gender inequity and the pay gap offer up immediate takeaways that can be helpful to anyone navigating a career in healthcare or health IT. Let's take a listen. Absolutely. So I think of myself as a dot connector. I am the, the one who can understand what is really being said in a conversation and help make sure that the other ears who need to hear these important messages, that it is said to them or written to them in a way so that they can understand it, so that they can take it in. So that requires an openness and an ability to set aside judgment because you have to create a safe space for people to be able to hear messages that they might not have otherwise been prepared to hear. Uh, And that is part of what I offer. Is there an example that you can, that comes to mind that maybe something um, healthcare, health IT related where you are really proud of your ability to, to connect those dots? For 17 years, I ran the North American division of HIMSS, which is a global organization. And in that time period, I had the honor and the privilege of being able to bring together many disparate voices that needed to be in the same, at least figurative, if not literal room 
together and to, to set aside competitive hats and be able to talk about real problems and how to solve those real problems. And so an example of that is instead of getting into um, arguments about, about um, things that don't really matter, let's focus on things like, for example, patients, right? And if we look at a problem through the lens of a patient, or if we look at a challenge through the lens of a physician or a nurse, um, um, access challenges, those kinds of common issues that are um, experienced by many different types of stakeholders uh, across a geography or across a profession um, or a, across an industry, those are places where you can create the opportunity to have discussions that need to be had. Uh, as I have moved into a new phase in my career, I'm continuing with that. And I use terms and phrases, things like discovery journeys, where I listen very hard to others' points of view and try to channel their points of view and encapsulate them in a constructive approach so that those who need to hear feedback are able to hear it in the spirit in which it is intended, which is to create positive and dynamic change. You know, something is coming up for me, which is it sounds a lot like it, a lot of the guests that we've been speaking with lately have really called to the idea of an, an, a true need for empathy. And what you're describing sounds a lot like you are seeing, you know, a workflow or, you know, perspective from somebody else, you know, seeing a viewpoint or vantage from somebody else within the stakeholder network and helping other stakeholders see what they see and connecting those dots. Does that ring true for you at all? It does. It does. And I, I appreciate that you are using the word empathy, which is, of course, very different than the word sympathy, right? Um, empathy is where, where I, can, I can hear and understand what you are trying to communicate to me. Sympathy uh, means that I'm joining you in whatever emotional state you are in. And, and you hit the nail on the head with the empathy because the, the, the reality that different people have to function within, we need to be respectful of that. Uh, to, to come in with grandiose statements that are judgmental in nature of you should stop that, you should start this, it, it, it almost stops the conversation because the, because the listener says this person is not making any effort to understand my reality and the challenges that I have to work within. Instead, if you come in and say, I want to hear about your world. I want to hear about how you interact with your patients. I want to hear about how you interact with your clinicians. I want to hear about what, what, um, what are the realities as you're trying to process this or, or, or perform this workflow or um, consider this solution, um, trying to implement something else or, or to optimize. The art of listening and 
active uh, responses that demonstrate that you hear them is such a vibrant component of the problem solving process. Well, I think you say it's vibrant, but I think it's not always there. So I like how you talk about listening to people to really, I, I don't want to say distill their message, but listen in a way where you can take away what's meaningful and actionable through their lens with probably an, an assumption of positive intent. Because when you focus on like what you said, breaking down the fundamentals, we can all agree about barriers to care and what those check boxes are, right? And some of the things right. that contribute to them widely. But when people start looking through lens or they say things like, you shouldn't do it that way, it becomes more polarizing. Whereas, like you said, that dynamic and vibrant art of listening just becomes a critical component for you to take away the parts and pieces of information to bring people together and help them listen to the meaningful, actionable bits of what someone has to say through their personal lens or through a department or whatever their discipline's lens is to, to collectively bridge the, the stakeholders, you know, not only understanding, but probably ability to move forward. Can you give us maybe one of the projects you're most proud of that you've done that with, or you felt like you really overcame maybe some big hurdles or big personalities? Can you share an experience? I hear you. And I have, I have so many, um, uh, just because of the roles that I've had in this space, I have had the opportunity to be in the room with, with people that have um, good reason to be competitive with each other uh, and have good reason to not particularly be interested in, um, in becoming committed, but finding that common ground, finding what is the, the problem that most can rally around so that we can solve a problem together. Um, when you get involved in things like doing uh, public comment periods, for example, where you're trying to assemble what can be quite polarizing points of view, you have to keep peeling the conversation back to understand what is the pebble in the shoe. It may start as a boulder, but you, if you keep asking and keep listening, then you can get it to the point where you really understand what the challenge is and you can find ways to, to work around that. So in areas like, um, there's so many areas where, where these kinds of approaches work. Certainly when you're dealing with um, vendor, vendor to vendor, encounters where it's in the best interest of the vendor community to come together to work on, on common problem solving, or uh, you're working with providers who might, um, their, their geographic boundaries can overlap, right? There are common ways that you can approach items of common issues that populations are dealing with where it allows providers to come together um, across the different aisles of, of payers and providers who have historically been in somewhat antagonistic situations of, again, peeling that back and finding places where folks can work collaboratively. So you can take all kinds of examples like um, um, the patient, patient identity, right? 
that's a thorn in everybody's side. Every patient wants to be identified correctly. Every clinician wants to know they've got the right patient. Every payer wants that. The, the vendors want to make you. Everybody agrees that, that patient identity is a worthwhile issue to be talking about. So, so that's an example. Um, a new topic is social determinants of health. Uh, the, the general belief is that there is um, good information and good knowledge to extract from social determinants of health, but it's really, really messy information, um, and it comes in really messy forms, but it is a challenge that multiple players across the health sector are willing to invest their time and their resources to figure out how to extract the value from social determinants of health data in order to positively impact a population's health and eventually, of course, get us to personalized health. Those are just a couple of topics right off the top of my head. Um, you could take the opioid epidemic. There are so many components in the opioid crisis around, around um, uh, clinician prescribing habits, around patients impressions and expectations when they see their clinicians around the, the uh, flow of the drugs from the manufacturer into the pharmacies, et cetera. Public policy issues come into play here. It's, it is a very broad and deep quilt in order to look at when you talk about opioids and yet being able to bring the different players together and rally around a component, like for example, let's take um, um, the recovery process. Uh, recovery from opioids is a lifelong recovery experience. And it is a recovery experience that will impact the family, it will impact the employer, it will impact the community, and certainly, of course, impact the individual who is working to maintain their sobriety. And what kinds, uh, how does the health system writ large play into this and how do we work collaboratively as a community in order to optimize success in lifelong recovery efforts? I think those are some amazing things. And again, just finding, like you said, that, that deep quilt, but the commonalities across those threads and everyone's point of view and their narratives. You know, before we move on, for the people that are sitting in rooms, be it a project manager, somebody trying to do a, a huge project or bring together multiple stakeholders, you know, you mentioned one thing is finding common ground and being a great listener. Is there one or two tips or tricks you would give people to help those stake, facilitate stakeholder collaboration? I mean, when you get the example mm. about people mm -hmm. having good reason to be competitive and not sit at the same table, I mean, that is alive and well in healthcare. You know, how do you, how do you, or even how do you break the ice in a room like that, for goodness sake? You rally around the problem statement. That's how you break the ice. Is, is, is you focus on the, the problem um, and you, 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 on purpose, you stay away from the third rail. Um, another one is, don't allow yourself to chase red herrings. 
right? Like let let let's say you're trying to figure out a figure out a way to to solve a challenge where you're dealing with um, um, multiple vendors, uh, multiple end users. You could you could really chase a red herring of NDAs, right? And get completely lost in NDAs and get completely lost in legal. As the as the leader, don't let yourself do that. It is that is an example of something that is important in and of itself, but it is merely a component that the leader always needs to pay attention to that something does not take over the conversation that has no business taking over the conversation. Um, so let's kind of let me kind of tease apart what you were asking about if if as a as a listener I'm a and you mentioned a, a project manager that those that type of individual who's who's listening and is um, dealing with a team issue or within their department I just want to make yeah, sure I'm framing I'll, this correctly I'll, I'll give a great example so one of the most fundamental and basic and projects I was ever part of had to do with uh, a stroke intervention that they were trying to fix at a hospital and it was a group of yeah. multidisciplinary stakeholders and there was a project manager, there's clinical informaticists in there, there's C-level people in there, physicians, of course, the IT folks, and they're talking. And I think what happened initially was a red herring, but it was a more micro-level examination of some things that needed to change. And they were new adopters to EMR, and they're talking about blood pressure. And so you have some nursing team members talking about blood pressure and where it goes here in this part of a visit note or flow. And then you have a doctor going, yes, but I'd like to see that over here. And then there's somebody else going, I'd like to see it over here. And finally, one of the clinical nurse informaticists stood up and she said, hey, guys, there's one blood pressure and it belongs to the patient. We can put it on eight different screens, but there's only one blood pressure. So can we move on? <laughs> and so I know you are doing this at a very, very broad level, working on really big initiatives. But when I think about that poor project manager, um, you know, bringing together these interdisciplinary teams to try and move things forward or other leaders, you know, what, you know, those tips and tricks about, you said, rallying around the problem statement and not chasing red herrings. I just think about people putting this into place on really a, a daily basis, because I think a lot of people show up and we can agree about the problem statements and those issues, but we get lost in a lot of those details and people have their guard up and everyone wants it done their way. It's the right way because their lens is the most clear. Um, so that was, that was one of the examples that had come to mind. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So yeah. So I've got I've got a I've got a number of things that need to be in place. Um, one one is there. There's got to be a champion um, beyond the project manager uh, because the project manager has a finite uh, locus of control, and so that that project manager in order to be successful, needs to know that there is a person with authority that is the sort of the wind beneath their wings, is their human shield, is their, um, the, the tip of their spear. So that's pivotal because you're absolutely right. Without that, and that project manager gets in the room with an interdisciplinary team who have strong and often not aligned 
opinions, that project manager is going, is going to have an incredibly difficult time moving forward. So there's, there's got to be that executive buy-in that is clear to the team. The, another thing that is pivotal is what is the problem you're trying to solve? That's got to be crystal clear. I, I, don't, I don't have the exact quote off the top of my head, but there's a, but there's a famous quote around, around in crafting the problem statement, the solution becomes apparent. It, it's something like that. Stay, figuring out what problem it is that you are trying to solve and being clear then about what is in scope and what is out of scope, that can help keep a team on focus. So that's another component. Um, and that one can actually take quite a bit of time. It is not necessarily easy to, to articulate the right problem statement. There may be some group storming and norming that's going to have to happen before the group gets into performing stage. But that, that's key. So um, then you need to have the right voices at the table. So if you're working with an interdisciplinary team to solve a problem, you need to make sure that the people who have a stake in that problem are part of the solution. Because if you leave them out inadvertently, it, it could absolutely be inadvertent, um, you're going to have a problem down the road. They are human beings. We have to buy in to solutions. If we don't buy in and it's something that matters to us, we can turn into antagonists because we really like the way things are right now. Even if they don't work great, at least we understand them in their not great way. Change is very, very hard. You know that wonderful saying of, I love, um, I love change, you go first. So you got to yep. have all of your voices at the table. You also probably are going to need to do a lot of behind-the-scenes conversations. Stay in touch with your stakeholders. Follow up with people after the meeting and, and say, hey, Joy, what'd you think? Talk to me. What, did, what? And, and give them some leading questions. And let them talk to you because you're going to learn a lot about who is coming on the journey with you willingly and readily and who might have some hesitations and who might actually have some breaks on. So that behind the scenes work is just so important. Another one is you have to walk the talk of credibility. You have to tell the truth all the time. You don't have to be, and I, you never want to be cruel um, or non-constructive in your truth, but you have to tell the truth all the time. Um, and do it carefully, but you got to do it because you've got to be credible. You also have to be the person who they can count on, who's dependable and reliable to follow up. You know where you are in the project at all times, and people can count on you to understand what still needs to be done, the progress that we are making. Also, be true to the process and allow yourself to stop or allow someone else to figuratively pull the cord on the train when they see a problem. That will empower the people around you and uh, help you develop a true spirit of leadership 
because they feel empowered to let you know when there are problems. You're not stifling them at all. You want them to tell you when there are challenges that are occurring to them. And you feed all of that into your ongoing process of moving the entire group forward. Check in with them frequently. You, you, know, you, you write up drafts of whatever it is that you're working on. You run it by them. You give them opportunities to inform it. And then they will see that you have actually taken their input. doesn't mean that you agree with everything. You don't have to take it all for crying out loud. But you have to recognize and appreciate that you got the input. And if you don't take the input, help them understand why not and what it would take to turn a, and I use this in a very soft way, turn a no into a, hmm, let's think this through again together. All of these are key attributes of how do I behave like a leader and move a group forward. I really, really like that you are seeking the problem and actually not shying away from people talking about it and talking about it openly and being, you know, just being a, a sounding board for whatever issues are coming up because that gives you an opportunity to address them. Whereas if they don't feel comfortable talking about the problem, then you can't, you don't really have an opportunity to uh, tackle it. And, um, oh, that's I absolutely to, right. and believe me, you're going to live it. You're going to live it if you don't. Exactly. My understanding mm -hmm. is that you've taken quite an active role in advancing the careers of female executives and really trying to close the gender gap in health IT. Is that something that you can speak to? Maybe some of what, what, have, some of, what have been some of the challenges that you've been faced with and ways, ways that you've been able to address them? Sure. So I am a champion of, of female executives in the health ecosystem and the digital health niche specifically. I have been in this field since 1991, which gets farther away every year, and um, <laughs> have for a, a long time uh, been quite accustomed to being either the only or one of the only women in the room. And I have, I've, I've, become, a, I've become a more well-rounded human being and executive because of that experience. And I am appalled at the compensation gap that exists in, in our economy, let alone in the digital health space. I am, I am appalled that the compensation gap in digital health actually increased from 2006 until 2016. It didn't decrease, it increased. That's, that's uh, unacceptable. Uh, and I have yet to meet a, a, a male partner who says that it is okay with him, in fact, even preferable, <laughs> neither one have I ever met, for his female partner to bring home less money than she is worth. Nobody wants that. My, uh, what my husband says is bring home every penny you possibly can, right? And yeah. so how is it possible that in the year 2019, 
that a gender makes less money than another gender. And if you look at this in the, in the health space, because I have looked at this, what, is, what happens, and this, it's not just healthcare, it's, it's, a, it's across sectors, is as a profession changes the uh, um, dominance of one gender to another gender, so goes compensation. So for example, there are over, uh, there are multi-million nurses practicing in the United States today. A tiny fraction of those nurses are men, but guess what? On average, the male nurse makes more than the female are you serious? nurse. I am serious. Wow. I will. I will. I will email you the data point. I, it, it makes makes my head want to explode. Um, yeah. As as a profession becomes more female, the compensation goes down. As a profession becomes more male, the compensation goes up. And so let's use an example of information systems, computer, com the, the computer and tech field. For a long time, that was dominated by women, right? We were the first computers. Hu human mm -hmm. beings were computers, right? And they were female. And they, they, as men came into this sector, Compensation went up, and women were marginalized out of the field. And there's something about the label of it being women's work that somehow makes it less valuable. And then as soon as that a, a man is able to do the job, somehow it's worth more. It does not make sense. It does not make it does not make sense unless you put it when it does start making sense is when you put it into a cultural currency. Um, many of the world's major religions are patriarchal. And so when, and many of the world's cultures are patriarchal. And so when you put it into that cultural context, it doesn't become accept, accepted in my mind, but I can understand how it happened. But I'm here yeah, to change it. Good for you. I'm, I'm here. I'm there with you. We actually... There is one of the guests that we're going to be um, that we have already spoken to who will be released in season three, but she came from India and to talk about how that patriarchy really set in her, like really affected her life to the point that being born a girl, she she wasn't even given a name. And we, I mean, my jaw was on the floor when I heard that. But thinking about really the deep the, the devaluing of women and how it can be this cultural societal like ex accepted norm and you know being born a woman having no control over your your sex or your gender it's it's kind of like the ultimate it's not fair <laughs> it's not fair and it's also bad business but um, we have to there, prove there, that and there is and there is evidence out there that public companies that have female representation on their boards of directors perform better than those companies who do not. Women make 80% of healthcare purchase decisions. So it makes sense from a business perspective to have the gender that 
dominates in the decision, the purchase decision making to have that gender represented in the C-suite. Just like it makes all the sense in the world to have the right representation for any kind of product line. Um, now, I wanted to, I, I, actually, I actually have the citation in front of me now. I've got a couple of other facts to share with you. So there are 3.8 million female RNs in the United States, and there are 335,000 male nurses practicing in the United States. As of 2017, those 335,000 men are taking home on average 7% more in compensation than the 3.8 million females. That is, how does that happen? Because like it happens at the point of them being hired, right? And mm -hmm. are, oh yeah, I I just yep. get I just yep. get lost in like how does that pass somebody's desk and make sense to whoever is hiring? And yep. it's across the board, and, so I don't get it. And yep, I don't either. And it's not just nurses. Um, I have I have information on physicians. In 2016, JAMA issued research that male practicing medical doctors made $20,000 more on average than females. In 2019, the Medscape Physician Compensation reported, uh, reported that that pay gap actually widened from 2016 to 2019. Also, uh, if you are in a specialty, a medical specialty, the gender gap is about $100,000 on average. Now, of course, we need to also take into account that specialties go everywhere from, from neurology to orthopedics to pediatrics, right? Those are all specialties. When you, when you pull together the 30 specialties, male physicians earn on average $372,000 a year. Women on average earn $280,000 a year. That is just staggering, absolutely mm -hmm. staggering. When you think about that in terms of healthcare and the role you've been playing as a champion of these women, especially the niche you defined, you know, what are some of the things you're working with them on or yourself to work towards closing that gap or have better representation of women in those types of roles? Yes. So I, I, have, I have a couple of things that, that, that I think are absolutely key. One is everyone is welcome in solving this problem with me. I am always very careful and very conscious to say that my interest in closing the compensation gap and closing the leadership gap from a gender perspective is not code for being anti-man, because I'm not. I want men, I want all genders to be part of this solution. They have to be part of the solution. Again, if we leave a voice out of this solving the problem, we are going to create a polarizing experience and that's going to sabotage the whole effort. So everyone is welcome here. Um, there, are, there are a lot of men out there that are, are as perplexed and appalled as I am on it and want to see this change and they so everyone is welcome so that's one item that's really important to me another one is knowledge is power if you don't know 
how much you're worth, you're not going to ask for it. So I work very hard to regularly get blogs out there and I do, I'm on the speaking circuit talking about compensation issues and leadership issues from a gender perspective because people simply don't know. And so part of what I do is to remove the, the lack of knowledge and replace it with information, highly credible, fact-based information, and then offer right behind it, once you find out you make less than somebody else does for the same type of work that you're doing, what do you do with that knowledge? Which takes me to the third point, which is to equip everyone for their role in solving the problem. So it means that the individual needs to learn how to be their own best self-advocate. And there are absolutely steps that people can take to do that, and I can talk about them if you want. Uh, the person who is in a place of authority of making recommendations on compensation, they need to have this kind of knowledge as well, because sometimes we, they don't even realize that they have a problem on their hands. So let's equip them for solving the problem. HR departments, they need data. They need to have the fact-based information. So HR is another place. And then, of course, executive leadership and boards of directors need to have access to knowledge that helps them understand why having a equitably compensated, diverse executive suite and board of directors is in the best interest of the company. All of those come into play. So I have a question, and it sure. as an individual, as somebody who is, you know, a woman seeking a job, could they, we've been sort of notoriously bad at negotiating or just kind of done a disservice to ourselves and not advocating for better pay. Across the board, would you advise that essentially everyone just kind of does ask for 7% more potentially? at least in certain fields, like if you have the statistics at the ready, and is that something that women should feel a little bit more confident in at the time of hiring to, to request mm -hmm. for more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me, let, me, um, let me pull that apart a little bit if I could, because you've got a lot of really important points that you were just making in there. Uh, so my global answer is that at point when you find yourself in a position to negotiate your salary coming into a new position, that is likely, but not always, likely to be the place where you have the greatest ability to impact your compensation. You've been selected by a company to join their group. They're high on you. They, they want to hire you. So make sure that you have your facts. So it's got to be evidence-based. Get the facts on what your profession and the level, you know, generally the level of expertise that you have and years of experience and such. Have that data available to you and then practice your negotiation skills. There are classes out there. There are uh, um, 
YouTube videos, many times community uh, uh, education, like you know through the through the local public school system, they'll do classes on negotiating skills. The local community college will offer those kinds of things. Lots of associations will offer those kinds of trainings. Take them. Uh, read about negotiating skills and then find a friend or a life partner or a colleague that you trust and practice. Do role playing and and have somebody ask you questions uh, so that you can practice your answers to them. You got to do all of that. When you are actually in a different situation that let's say that you you are in your job, uh, which you know most people are, they, they only once in a while change a job, but lots of times you're in a job, and you have a hunch that you are not being paid fairly, or you come across evidence that appears to show that you actually are not being paid what some of your colleagues are being paid. This is a, a different situation and one that you also need to get yourself prepared for. Um, a big mistake that people make is they fly off the handle and they, you know, just they get upset and they go crashing into HR and they're just righteous. No, 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 no. Take time. Go, <laughs> go. You know, find a piece of wood and take some bites out of it or something, whatever you need to calm yourself down. Pull together your facts. Again, role play and practice with somebody, even if you practice in front of the mirror, but give your ch yourself a chance to practice and then go in and make sure that you are both sharing your point of view in a constructive and confident way and that you also listen, seek to understand because you may not have the full story and the last thing you want to do is to go in all righteous and then have the rug pulled out from under you when somebody provides some additional factual information that, that demonstrates that what you thought was not the whole story. So coming in in a calmer but confident way and being able to listen offers the opportunity to have a better outcome. I think that's really practical advice and you know women especially I think if you're a parent I, I think we're better at having those difficult conversations so I think if we can and practicing them is so important because it's so if important negotiated the right way up front at some point in time Everyone wants more, believes they deserve more, and I think remaining calm, being objective, providing the context under what you've come across this, and making a precise ask about what you hope the solution to be or what else you need from the person on the other side of that dialogue or equation is so important. So I think anyone listening today, whether you're in the C-suite or not, that is super practical and actionable advice. Well, I'm glad you think so. Let me, if I could, I'm just going to offer a little bit additional color commentary in that role playing, even again, even if you're doing the role playing with yourself in front of the mirror, but whatever, or you're doing it with a trusted person, you've got to role play the, the nose. Um, that, that 
along along the points in your discussion of when you could encounter a no, what do you do with the no at that point? So that you can find ways to constructively keep the conversation going and turn that, make a left turn or a right turn instead of a stop when you get a no. That's great advice. That's especially yeah. just getting, getting, uh, getting used to practicing. The only thing is it's also important, you know, to practice saying no. I think that's like women have been known to say yes to a lot of things too, but even responding to a no, that's, Really important and how do you yeah, get good at yeah. it? Yeah, you got to get good at it. You, and, and the only way you get good at it is to practice it. Um, another thing to, to, keep in, to keep in mind is I've been using the word compensation rather than the word salary because compensation is a broader word. Compensation encompasses additional items like your vacation pay, uh, your 401k, benefits, uh, your work environment, right? It, it, that's all compensation. No, I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you look at the differences between men's and women's compensation, do they take into account those pieces as well? Like, It's not just that they're getting paid more salary, but do they tend to get more vacation days and more contributed to their 401k? Thank you for asking that. It allows me to be more precise. Those studies are talking about salary, and oftentimes they intersperse the word salary with the, with the word compensation. They use it interchangeably. But their data is based upon salary. It, 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 it might also include incentive or bonus, but we're talking money. Okay, but I think what so, you know is when mm -hmm. you go in there to be more holistic in what it is. I have a girlfriend who found out as a VP, three VPs at a company, or excuse me, four, including her. She was the only one that was not offered any sort of equity stake, and they were all hired at the same time. They all had the same credentials. As a matter of fact, she went to the same graduate program as one of her colleagues and had had a few years more experience in this specific field. So I think. You know, I think your point is, well, the data is based on salary, that we have to be more holistic in our thinking about everything coming our way, and maybe even including yeah. in those things that, you know, maybe flex time is more valuable to somebody than an extra $1,000 a year, or mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. Yes, that's exactly where I was going, um, that in your role playing uh, and, in, and anticipating obstacles, there's this gets to those negotiation skills that in your mind you've gone through sort of a prioritization of what is most important to you and what you are potentially willing to negotiate around like for example you just mentioned flex time that if if your employer either just doesn't have any budgetary ability, no, no authority to increase your salary at this time. Okay, well, you know, let's talk about flex time for the next year, and then we'll revisit salary in a year. And that, that could be one of your negotiation points. Carla, so okay. you have a great Thank depth you. of knowledge. You have had a very dynamic ability to meet with so many people in healthcare. Tell us if 
you know, in a very magical world, put on your magical thinking hat, money, resources, time is not a question. What problem will you solve in healthcare or health IT and why? I got it. My, my mind was, my mind was expanding. I'm like, oh, really? I can, I can tell them. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we want to know. All right. Yeah. I, I, I believe health is a human right. It is not a privilege. I would create an environment where children and adults have the right access that they need to um, clean drinking water and nutritious food and an environment in where they can, they can move their bodies and exercise in ways that help create health and that when they face an illness, that they have the right access to the right clinicians at the right time to, so that the best possible decisions can be made to help return them to health, or if that's not an option, to help them manage their new realities. Because in order for us to live the most productive lives and the most satisfying lives and to be a productive member of society, we've got to have our health. A healthy population is a nation's strongest asset. And so if I could change anything, I would make health and healthcare a human right. I think that would be a game changer. And I love the way you articulated <laughs> it being one of the greatest assets a country can have. You know, I got to tell you, you want to hear a story? I yeah, figured yeah, that out. Story. Okay. So I, fig I figured that out when right after the November 2016 presidential election, I was invited, and, and this had happened pr prior to the election, of course. I had been invited to speak at an event in Europe. And it was a, it was a European healthcare event. And so the elections happen, and then the event comes up, I get on a plane, go over to Europe. I do my presentation, and the organizers of the event say, hey, you know, our audience is a little confused about what just happened in the United States. Would you mind doing a second session, like a town hall with us? And our audience, it could just be a, a free give and take, a, a Q&A. As an American who has a lot of experience in health policy, maybe you could help our audience understand a little bit better how the election played out. No pressure. Said, sure, sure. So I, I went right back to my, to my hotel room and refreshed everything I could possibly think that the audience might ask me. So I had all of all of very, very fresh information and, and you know, how did the voting work and the different demographics of voting and uh, how voters in this area voted compared to others, et cetera, et cetera. And because this was a healthcare audience, the topic that came up pretty rapidly and they they stayed on was trying to understand the differing points of view in the United States of politicians in regards to how politicians viewed access to health care. And so I was trying to help the audience understand that some politicians in the United States view 
healthcare as not not as a a right, but as a it, it's a it's a, a much more it's the responsibility of the of the employer and the individual, et cetera. And literally, the audience, you know how you, people kind of cock their head on one side and then their brow will furrow and they're kind of looking at you like you're speaking a different language? That's what sure. people's heads were doing. And they're looking at me and it's like I'm speaking Martian. And they would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We think of healthcare as a right. Don't, why don't you think of healthcare as a right? And I, I'm trying to uh, share with them my understanding and my knowledge of the U.S. political system, but I walked away from that as a human being saying, oh, I am so with this audience. <laughs> I believe healthcare is a right. Well, if we treated it that way, we would certainly have a bunch of different outcomes in this country. Yes. 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 And I'm certainly not a Pollyanna. I, I, I understand that there are financial ramifications, uh, very challenging problems, thorny problems that need to be solved, which is why I'm an executive in the health industry to start with. These are the kinds of thorny problems I love being involved with to try to help solve and create sanity around. Well, speaking of thorny problems, and you know, we talk about healthcare changing on such a quick pace in this country. How do you keep up? What do you listen to? What do you read? What is impacting your day-to-day, -day, how you understand our own healthcare system here in the U.S.? Okay, so I, I have I have several several points that I listen to very carefully. One are my clients. I am working with a broad suite of clients, everywhere from providers to private equity firms to associations to consulting companies, and everywhere in between. And oh my goodness. Those are such fantastic opportunities for me to keep it real, of really understanding just how challenging the health ecosystem is and to never uh, try to or, or, or pretend or gloss over the challenges. It is and I love that. I, that. So I just love that the opportunity. Other places where I stay in deep understanding is I read constantly. I, I read everything I can get my hands on uh, in, my, in my news feeds around healthcare and the different sources that are available. Certainly uh, um, uh, entities like, that are in, in the digital health space like, um, like Fierce and um, health data management and healthcare IT news, uh, listening to podcasts like like yours. Uh, Lisa Suenin's got a wonderful podcast that she does. Uh, and of course, I read mainstream media as well. They've got some fantastic healthcare reporters. Uh, Politico's fantastic. New York Times has got some wonderful uh, health journalists. So those are all different places where I take in information and try to make sense of it. 
Well, thank you for sharing your reading with us. Carla, if people want to find you, if people want to find you, where can they connect with you online? What are your handles? Where are you at? Absolutely. So uh, my my Twitter is at Carla M. Smith. So that's Carla with a C and M as in Marie at Carla M. Smith. I'm on LinkedIn and my email address is Carla at carlasmith.health. When I found out that we had a brand new domain available to us in the United States, .health, I was one of the first people who grabbed it. Uh, so um, I welcome ge people getting hold of me and I look forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. Well, thank you again for talking with us. This has been a real pleasure. Oh, it has been a joy. It's been a joy talking with you. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.